Well, I'm, we're going to wade into some controversial territory this morning, so heads up, fair warning, and we're going to get started with a quick poll. And I know when I do this, um, I get just like, you know, 25% participation, maybe 50% participation at the most, but I'm going to ask you three questions, and I kind of expect that at some point, your, every person's hand will go up in this room to one of these three questions. So I'm asking for your participation just because you're good people and you, you know, you kind of generally like me or whatever, um, you know, we'll, we'll just, we'll try to participate here. So here's three questions for you as we get started this morning. Um, hopefully not too controversial, but maybe we'll see. So first of all, I'd like to ask for a show of hands from all the Seahawks fans. You would say you are a Seahawks fan. Okay. Fair amount of hands went up. How many would say you root for another team other than the Seahawks? Okay. A lot of hands about the same number. Um, I don't know if someone went up twice, but, and then here's my third question. How many of you do not care at all about any of this? Go ahead and raise your hand. Wait, that's more hands. That's more hands. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, I want you to know that we've got a little bit of division in this room, right? There's some kind of differences of opinion um, on this topic that's very low stakes, let's be honest, right? But I want to talk this morning from Romans chapter 14 about how do you handle differences of opinion in the church about maybe more substantial matters than what football team you follow? How do we handle differences of opinion? What should our posture be to each other when it comes to strongly held convictions that maybe the Bible is not super clear on? And so there's differences of opinion about what, where we land on these different topics. So Romans chapter 14, we're going to be in verse 1 in just a moment. We are bringing in the, the, this, this conclusion of the series in just a couple weeks. So this is week 23 of our study through the book of Romans, and we've got two more Sundays after this one, and then we'll be wrapping it up, and I'm excited to tell you about what's coming next, to be off to stay tuned for that. Um, our series, the book of Romans, Grace Changes Everything. The Apostle Paul has been writing to this church at Rome and talking about um, what is you know, what are the needs? What has Jesus done for us? And then based on what Jesus has done for us, how do we live this out? And our, you know, statement is that justification is by grace through faith and grace changes everything. Justification is how we are made right by, by God. How, how does what Jesus did for us make us right before God? How do we receive it? And then how do we live this out? And this is what the book of Romans has been focusing on um, a great deal this morning. Before I move on, though, I need to say a quick word to someone joining us on the live stream right now. So I was told by text message just moments ago that Emily, Ginny, and Scott are watching right now on our live stream. So I want to say hello to them. We love you so much. We love you so much. Uh, we believe Emily's coming back to Spokane on Tuesday, we think, to continue her recovery here. And so we are so excited. We've been praying for you. We love you to pieces, and we uh, can't wait to see you. Um, yes, we can do that one more time. We're praising God for you, and we're excited to, excited to see you. So Romans chapter 14, let's dive in here. Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let, let, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Scott says, thank you all, by the way. I just got a text message. Okay. 
Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living." Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now let's stop there for just a moment. Some brief comments about this, um, especially for any of you that feel lost right now about what we're talking about. And then we're going to continue and read the rest of the chapter here in a few moments. So Paul mentions days, he mentions food, he says one person believes they may, eat any, they may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Does Paul have a problem with vegetarians? Is that what this is about? It, he's, <laughs> I heard yes, but I have to disagree, that's not what this is about. Um, Paul is speaking to, remember in this, in this church in Rome, there are Roman Christians, I mean Gentiles and Jewish people that are gathered together in one community, which is a beautiful thing. And, and they have, from their different cultural backgrounds, before these people would be separated from each other, they wouldn't be in close fellowship. But God, Jesus Christ has brought them together. And they're all existing in this one community. And there are Jewish people in this church who believe that they still needed to keep the kosher requirements, to not eat unclean food, to eat only clean food. And that was their conviction And it was their strongly held conviction. But to do this in Rome at this time was very complicated. There weren't kosher delis they could go to, right? They didn't have the little label on the back of the different cuts of meat on whether or not it was kosher or halal or, you know, in the the Muslim culture, right? There wasn't those kinds of conveniences. It would just be a market and there would be different cuts of meat and things like that. And so many Jewish Christians, in order to maintain what they believed they needed to, to eat no unclean food, to eat only clean food. They would just eat vegetables because they're like, that's an easy one. We'll do what Daniel and his friends did when they were in Babylon and just eat vegetables. Um, the days issue, right? He says there's one of you observes, esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. For Jewish Christians at this time, there were certain days that were very important to them culturally. They had the festivals that they would celebrate, or observing the Sabbath day. In the early church, Christians moved from worshiping on the Sabbath on Saturday to now choosing the Lord's Day, Sunday, the day of the resurrection. This this was a change that happened very early on. And the Jewish Christians in the church might have been uncomfortable with this. Like, I think we should worship on Saturday instead of on Sunday. But Paul says, each of you might have differences of opinion. Don't despise the other You know, don't criticize the other person or judge the other person. So Paul will talk more about this food issue next here. But I'll say real quick that 
Many of them believe that they were, they were honoring God by doing this. These Jewish Christians, they say, God never said to stop celebrating the festivals or to change the day to a, a different day of worship. And so we're trying to maintain our convictions and our sense of, uh, of just wanting to honor God, wanting to obey him, wanting to, to, to please God in everything that we do and how we live and all of that. So now let's jump in. We're going to read verses 13 to 23. Hopefully that gives you some context and you'll see how some of these things play out here as we continue. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the matter of God is not a matter of, or the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We read a lot of verses and we're not done. We've got more verses that we're going to be covering here. But I, hopefully we understand some of the, the big pieces of what's going on in this passage. There's this debate, this situation in the church. And it starts with this phrase in Romans 14, verse 1. He says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And different translations of the scripture will translate this quarrel over opinions piece a little bit differently. The... the NIV says disputable matters. Don't argue over disputable matters. Uh, the King James has this wonderful phrase, doubtful disputations in this part. Right? There's this idea that there are things that are disputable, things that we might disagree on in a Christian family, in a church. Right? There are some things that we are certain about and we hold to tightly because we say these things matter. Right? The Bible teaches on them very clearly. And there's these things that showed up in these early Christian creeds where we say, um, we, we believe in the resurrection, we believe in the, the virgin birth, we believe in the Trinity, all these, all these statements of belief that we hold on tight to. And we say we need to be on the same page about these things. And then there's a lot of disputable matters. And in the early church, these gray areas were, were these things that he mentions. He mentions the meat, he mentions certain days and observing certain days. And then he mentions wine. He throws that one in at the end as well. Now, in 1 Corinthians, uh, so, so this, let me, let me just uh, make sure we're clear about what's going on here. So we believe the Jewish Christians, Paul, Paul calls them the weaker brothers. There's the stronger brothers and the weaker brothers. And Paul makes his stance clear. He says, I believe that there is nothing unclean anymore. I believe that Jesus' ongoing revelation and him teaching us about what's acceptable, and you know, you can read the book of Acts and the, the miracle, the vision that happened with Peter, where he was told that he could eat 
whatever. And thank you, God, for that moment because bacon cheeseburgers are on the menu now for us. It's okay. We can eat those things. We can combine the, uh, the meat and the dairy and all of that. It's fine now. Yes. Thank you, God. Um, but for the Jewish Christians, there was this sense of conviction that they couldn't quite practice those things yet. In 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10, there's a similar dynamic going on in a much different context. This is the Roman church that Paul's writing to in, in Rome with Jewish Christians that had been expelled from Rome for a while and then eventually come back. And while they were away, the, the church went from being largely Jewish to now largely Gentile with a Jewish component. And there was conflict. And Paul's trying to help them sort through this. How do you not have conflict over disputable matters? 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 was a similar dynamic where there was a bunch of people that were formerly idol worshipers. And there was this meat sacrifice to idols that they were debating about this in, in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10. And so the situation was this. Sometimes um, there would be the, the, all these idols, right, and there would be offerings left for them. You see this still in cultures like Cambodia, Thailand, where there's food um, offered up to these idols, these statues. And it turns out idols don't eat very much. It, it, they don't eat anything, in fact, right? They're not alive. And so there would be meat sacrificed to these idols that would be, then be offered for a really great discounted price at whatever the ancient version of grocery outlet was, you know? You could get like really good deals on cuts of meat. And so some Christians in the church at Corinth would eat those would buy those and take advantage of it and just eat it. And other Christians who were former idol worshipers perhaps felt convicted about that. They're like, that was meat sacrificed to an idol. I feel like I'm participating in some way with the worship of that. And so Paul's addressing a similar dynamic in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10 as he is in Romans 14. Paul here makes his personal conviction clear though. He says, I believe that I can eat whatever. There's no food unclean to me. It's about my heart, it's about my faith, it's about my conscience and my conviction before God. But he does make a value judgment. He says, and I believe my position is the better position. That's the stronger one. But he never shames the people who don't hold his conviction. In all those verses we just read, 23 verses, he never says, try to win them over. Try to convince them with really convincing arguments. You know, Try to shame them or embarrass them about their, their, their weaker faith. He says, no, he doesn't say any of that. He says it's about what, where their heart is and where those behaviors are coming from. And so this is the dynamic between the weaker and the stronger. We tend to think sometimes that the people with the longest list of rules about what they can and can't do in the Christian life are the stronger ones. And in this case, in this passage, Paul's saying that they're in fact the, the, the weaker ones. They don't understand the full implications of the gospel that we can't make ourselves acceptable before God by observing ceremonial laws and celebrating festivals and things like that, that Jesus is the one who does all the work for us and that we simply humble ourselves and submit our, our lives to him and live our lives in obedience to him as he calls us to in his word and, and with our sense of conviction. Now, I believe that in this group, we have trouble relating to, to Paul's situation in this church in Rome. Like, I don't think you've ever gotten a debate with another Christian about whether or not you can eat the meat sacrificed to idols. Not aware of that. Um, it's pretty unlikely. 
or, or whether or not you should f- celebrate the festival of tabernacles, right? It's like that doesn't come up. I've never had to deal with that in my 20 plus years of ministry of trying to solve a dispute between some Christians about whether or not we should celebrate the feast of tabernacles. But in Paul's day, this was a very current issue. Now, here's where I get to the controversial territory. So buckle up. Here we go. Uh, I'm saying that to myself too. Uh, okay. So we have disputable matters in our time. In the church, in modern day church, there are beliefs and in some cases practices that fall into that category, I think, of disputable matters. And we need to be clear about what are disputable and what are not, right? We, we, we need to know what are the, the truths that we hold to, that we must maintain, that we unify around. And then what's in that kind of gray area? And I'm going to make some suggestions about things I think fall into that gray area. So give me some grace, and we all get to practice what this passage is teaching us as I give you my list. I think Christians in this church and Christians you know, outside this church will d- disagree on what kind of entertainment options are acceptable for Christians, what you can and can't watch, what you can and can't listen to. How about the way you educate your children? How should Christians educate their children? How about um, an event coming up here in just a 10 days or so, right? How about Halloween? What should our stance be on this? Do we participate in that? Do we just totally avoid it? Um, here's some other, other things that are more kind of theological beliefs, but how about the end times, exactly how the end times are going to play out? How about the age of the earth? How about the way spiritual gifts are practiced and what spiritual gifts we practice today? How about the roles that men and women play in the church? How about style of worship? What kind of music is acceptable in the church or the style of worship? How about what you should wear in the church uh, or to church? Um, How about alcohol, whether or not it's acceptable for Christians to drink alcohol, right? So for each of these things, and, and you might have, as I've been reading this list, you might go, I think the Bible's very clear on all of those or most of those, right? And if you feel that way, we all get to practice what Paul's talking about, right? Because there are other Christians who, who believe strongly in the authority of the word of God and that might land somewhere else than you do on those issues. And that when that happens, when you have a strongly held conviction on one of these things and you find that your strongly held conviction is not shared by somebody that you worship with, what do you do? Now, before we get there, I want to talk for just a moment about this idea of the, the, uh, the way we think about these disputable matters. Because I think some Christians or some people in Christian circles will say that basically there is nothing that is a disputable matter. Like we must be on the same page about every single one of these issues. No, there's no room for debate in any of those things. Or there's other people that would say every Christian belief is basically a disputable matter. Right? The resurrection is a disputable matter. That Jesus is God's son, the way, you know, that, that Jesus' work on the cross saves us from our sins. They would put everything in that category. We can all agree to disagree on all these core issues. There's this old framework. Some people attribute this to Augustine. Uh, we think it might be much older than him, but it's this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Right? In essentials, there are essential teachings of the church and the, the Christian faith Historical Christianity has always held to these essentials. We must be unified around them. And we do, in some cases, need to part company or or divide over things when those essentials are compromised. 
the truths of the, of, the, of the gospel and things like this. There's non-essentials, which are, I think, the list that I just gave. In those non-essentials, there is liberty. There's room for people to maybe land in different places. But in all things charity, we need to be loving no matter where we stand on, on different things. So, Paul, here's some guidelines for us as we get to these disputable matters. If you have a strongly held conviction, you think the Bible supports it even, and you can make the case with verses, and maybe there's another person that would make the exact opposite case, and they would have their own list of verses about why they disagree with you. What, what do you do in these environments? What do you do in these situations? Do you part company, or do you do what Paul teaches us to do? He says, we need to have a posture of welcome versus judgment. We need to have a posture of welcome versus judgment. He uses this word welcome twice in the first three verses. And we're going to cover a few verses in chapter 15. He's going to use it again. But it's this idea that we have a choice when we run into these situations. Will we write the other person off or will we receive them and welcome them? And every time Paul uses this word welcome in his writings, it's this idea of making room for them. Opening your heart to them. Allowing like just room in your life and in your community for people that may not land exactly where you land. And the alternative is that we pass judgment. We write them off. Paul outlines this in the verses we read before in um, verses 3 through um, 4. 3 and 4. He says, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. He says, God has welcomed them. So who are you to not welcome them? If if someone lands somewhere different on maybe one of these disputable matters, God's welcomed them already. So don't despise them, don't judge them. God is their master. God is the judge. When we place ourselves in this place of judgment, we, we put ourselves in God's place. God is the master. God will judge them. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, Paul says in verses 10 through 11. I also, I love in this passage where Paul links this debate and trying to help them solve this problem back to the resurrection, if you missed that, it was in verses 7 through 9. He says this, this idea that we, um, none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. I said this around Easter time, but the resurrection is not just an Easter thing. It's an all of the Christian life thing. And Paul says even this, the way you think about this should be impacted by the resurrection. Whether we live, whether we die, God is Lord of the living and of the dead. So one guideline for us when you run into these disputable matters and you land in a different place as somebody else um, is to take a posture of welcome versus a posture of judgment. Second is this, follow your conscience and conviction. Follow your conscience and conviction, right? Paul did not tell us to try to convince the person how wrong they are about their stance. That's the one thing he didn't say. He said a lot of things in that passage, but he didn't say, hey, convince them. Again, he made a value statement. 
He said, I believe this is the stronger position and this is the weaker position. But it, he, he affirmed their convictions and he told them to follow their conscience. He says, you're doing that for the Lord and you're doing that to the Lord. So whether you believe you need to follow the Old Testament festivals or not, he said, do follow your conviction. Follow what God has called you to do. Which just brings up a weird concept for us, and it's this. It is possible for something to be sin for someone and not sin for somebody else in these disputable matters. That if someone has a strong conviction from God that, that this thing is a sin, whatever it might be, and somebody else might have a different conviction that it could be sinful for that person who has that conviction to do it versus the person who doesn't have that conviction. And in this case, we follow our conscience, which is just seems like such an old-fashioned term, doesn't it? I don't feel like we talk about the word conscience very much. It reminds me of Jiminy Cricket, you know, from, from the Pinocchio story. That he's his conscience, you know, and he's tell, teaching uh, Pinocchio how to, how to be a moral person and how to make good the choices between right and wrong. And that we have this sense of conviction from God, our conscience, that we need to be sensitive to. And it's possible to, like, override that and to sear it, to, to like, to, to ignore it so much that we damage it. And we don't, we're not going to have as sensitive a conscience as we need to. The third kind of principle for us here that I want to talk about for a few moments is this tension between love and liberty. There is a tension between love and liberty. So some people will have the liberty to do certain certain things, and they need to be careful in the practice of their, their Christian freedom and their liberty to not hurt people in the way that they practice it. It's possible to throw stumbling blocks in the way of somebody else with the way that you practice your Christian freedom that might actually hurt them. And so we need to be thoughtful about how we engage in in certain practices that might be these disputable matters and be sensitive to the people around us that might have a different conviction or a different sense of conscience about what these things are. People could be pressured by the way that we practice our liberty in front of them, they go, well, that's fine for them. I've never felt like that was fine, but if, they, if they're doing it, then I'm going to do it. And, it might, and for them, it might actually be sinful. And in doing this, we, we can cause people to stumble. And Paul raises the stakes. He says, do not destroy the brother or sister in this case for whom Christ died. The stakes couldn't be higher. When we think about our brothers and sisters in Christ that we worship with or that we're in groups with, we need to be careful that we're being loving in the way that we practice the liberty that we might have. He says, think of the cross. We were just singing, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Right? Consider what Jesus has done for the world. Consider what Jesus has done for us. And consider what Jesus has done for your brother or sister. That's a person for whom Christ died. I don't want to do anything to cause them to stumble or to hurt them. I'm going to guard them. I'm going to protect them. That is the loving thing to do. There's a word that was not used in this passage, but I think this passage is all about this word, which is the word unity. We need to be unified. We need to be united in the, in the way that we practice the Christian faith. And I think too often in Christian circles, we divide over disputable matters. We bump up against one of these things. 
And we say, my strongly held conviction versus your strongly held conviction or your conscience, like I can't, we, we can't find any way around it. And then we divide. And it happens way too often. There's a comedian, Emo Phillips, who was kind of an odd comedian, but he's told this joke. He said, um, once I saw this guy on a bridge about to jump and I said, don't do it. He said, nobody loves me. I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, are you a Christian or a Jew? He said, a Christian. I said, me too. Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. What franchise? He said, Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern Region? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him over. There's a statistic that's often quoted online that there are 33,000 Christian denominations. And I want to say I've researched that, and that's not true. There's not, there's not that many, but there are way too many. We, Christians tend to divide up um, just way more often than they should. And it, I think it breaks God's heart. I think it goes against, like, Jesus' prayer, the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. Um, I don't know exactly what the number of denominations are, but I think it's too many. And I think if we really get the point that Paul's teaching here, there would be fewer denominations. That we can, we can, there's room for diversity and kind of where we land on these, on these different issues. And that we need to, when that conflict or potential conflict happens, we need to emphasize unity and emphasize the love and connectedness that, that what we have in common is far bigger than anything that might divide us. I think about church history quite a bit, as we all do. Um, you probably don't, but I, I, let's be honest, not, not very many of you think about this, but I love the history of Christianity. I've studied it quite a bit. I taught a, a homeschool co-op class on Christian history recently, and I love thinking about kind of where we've been and the lessons learned and the story of Christian history. And one of the things that just is, is a disappointment and a discouragement is just how many times the church broke off into different categories. That, that it happened like way further back than we think. It's not just Protestant Catholic, it's Eastern Church and, you know, the Catholic Church was the, the first big break. And then it continued from, from then to being, you know, Catholics, Protestants separated and the Protestants just splintered into many, many different denominations. And, and I don't think it's supposed to be like that. I think a lot of those splits were because of these disputable kind of matters that we can agree to disagree and still fellowship and still coordinate our efforts on the mission of Jesus together. I had the opportunity during my sabbatical and then a, a couple weeks after my sabbatical to attend a total of five different churches um, on Sundays during, over a course of like seven or eight weeks. I went to five different churches, um, if you count this one, six, but um, had the opportunity to go to a bunch of other churches, and they were all different denominations. And 
I, I just, I love the opportunity to do that because I love the church. I don't, I, I don't, and I'm usually busy on Sunday mornings, right? So I don't get to do that very often to go visit other churches. But I visited a variety of different churches, different kinds of buildings, different worship styles. Um, went to a very large church and some smaller churches. Um, and, and it was just a great experience, but they were all very different denominations. But I think even just being there, was, was my way of, you know, saying that we're on the same team, we're in the same, we're moving the same direction, we're serving the same Jesus. I had a conversation with one of the pastors that was kind of discouraging for me uh, during, during one of those visits, and I won't say the name of the church, um, but, but the pastor made it clear to me that, hey, there's a lot of things that we probably agree on, but the differences between us are enough that we probably couldn't work together on common cause things. And, and I, I was discouraged by that. I understood that, I guess, coming from, uh, from where he was. But I, th- this goes against what God wants. This is not what God wants. This is that, and I wasn't even there to try to coordinate any kind of coordinated activity. It was just something that came up in the conversation. That the churches should be united more than they are. And by the way, in Spokane, um, just for our, I can speak for our area specifically, like there's a huge amount of unity amongst the pastors. I'm friends with a ton of pastors. I meet, meet for lunch with a bunch of other pastors once a month, and there's just a lot of connection. And I think in a way that's unusual compared to other parts of the country and maybe even other parts of the world. But in Spokane, we're pretty connected and we're pretty united um, in a special way for the most part, with that, the exception of the one I just mentioned. Um, John 17, verses 20 to 21. Jesus is praying. The Apostle John records the words of his prayer. This is, we call this the high priestly prayer. And as Jesus is praying for his disciples, he prays for us. He prays for those who will hear the message from the people who heard the message from the disciples and on and on through history. And he says, I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. And his prayer request for us is this, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus says the world gets the opportunity to look at the church and look about whether, whether or not they are united. And that will tell them about how credible their message is about Jesus. Which is, that's a tough one. Right, because often the world does not look at us and see a united church. They see, well, if you guys can't even agree on what you believe, like, why should I believe what you believe? And, and I think we can be a part of the solution, at least on this local church level. And then as we connect and coordinate with other people as well, that we... We need to prioritize unity. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 was a passage that I read several times during 2020, which is a, was a particularly tumultuous and divisive year. Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And what I talked about during 2020 was like, there's so many things that could divide us right now. And I'm hearing from friends of other, pastors of other churches about how divide, divided their church is right now on everything. 
race, COVID, etc. Politics. And I'm so, I'm, I'm so thankful, I'm so proud of our church for how we navigated that year that we did agree together that we were going to be united. We were going to, that what we unite around is much bigger than what could divide us. And we are going to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. This idea of being eager to do something, right? If you think about your car that requires maintenance and you have to maintain it, otherwise it will break down. Regular oil changes and all the other stuff that I don't know that I should be doing with my car because I'm not a car guy. Um, maintain the car, you know, right? Keep, keep it going. You got to maintain it because otherwise it'll break down. With unity, you have to maintain it, otherwise it will break down. And not only do you need to maintain it, but you need to be eager to maintain it. Like just, I, I'm so excited to maintain the unity. I'm like, I just, this matters to me, an eagerness, a motivation to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's something we all have to agree on together that we're, when we come up against these issues where we might part, part company on different things, that that's okay, there's room, I welcome you. Jesus welcomed you. Who am I to pass judgment on you? I'm not going to despise you because we land somewhere differently. I'm going to make room in my heart for you. We're going to read the next few verses in chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, make a couple of brief comments on that, and then we're going to be dismissed. Romans 15, verses 1 through 7 say this, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. There it is. May we be in harmony. May we be in one voice. And then he says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And I also like to think about that final verse, verse 7, in terms of what kind of church we aspire to be. We, We are people who have been welcomed by God into his family at high cost. And we have the opportunity regularly to extend a welcome to people who want what we have or who are curious about it. And we're all in the welcoming committee. We get to be a part of welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed us into his family. And so when we keep this in mind as we see people maybe who are newer to our church uh, or whatever, that we're on this welcoming committee and we get to welcome other people and extend a warm welcome the way Jesus himself extended a warm welcome to us into his family. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time of reflecting on these deep truths. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us with these um, concepts that we've been talking about this morning. Help us to be people who are um, welcoming versus being judgmental. Help us to be people who focus on unity Lord, help us to leave room for people's conscience and conviction. And Lord, help us to follow our own sense of that. Lord, help us to get a balance between this liberty and and love idea, Lord, that we might practice our Christian liberty in a a loving way that wouldn't hurt anybody or cause them to stumble. 
And Lord, it's sometimes hard to wrestle out exactly what you might be calling us to do with some of these concepts, but I pray that your Holy Spirit right now would give us ideas of what some of these things might be. And Lord, then may we submit those to you and submit ourselves to you and say, I'm going to emphasize love and serving people around me over practicing my liberty or disagreeing in such a strong way that people feel like they're not even welcome here because they don't share my exact conviction. May this be an environment, Lord, where we extend that welcome to people who are far from you. And Lord, as we've just been reflecting on that there are you have welcomed us into your family. And Lord, I know there's likely people that are watching this um, online or people in the room or people who might watch this on another time that have yet to receive the invitation to be welcomed into your family. And so Lord, I pray even right now you would would draw people into your your uh, relationship with you and into your family. And Lord, your word tells us that Salvation is by grace through faith. It is a gift that we receive. And we we just need to exercise enough faith to say, I believe in you and I want to receive that. And so, Lord, I pray if there's anybody here today or watching, Lord, that has yet to receive that gift, even now, right now, Lord, invite them into your family. And, Lord, may we be a wonderful community where that those people can grow and develop and put down roots in that faith. And as we do that, may we maintain this posture of welcome and love for people, Lord. And we thank you so much that just what you've been doing in the past through this community, what you're going to do in the future, Lord, we, we are so grateful for your gift of love and your welcome, the way you've welcomed us so graciously into your family. May we extend that welcome in the same way to others. We praise you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Hey, would you stand?